and thank you for joining us. This is the Fisheries Podcast, a weekly podcast that shares the stories of the amazing people and projects that make up fisheries science. If you haven't already, you can follow the podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at FisheriesPod. You can support the program through Patreon with either a recurring or a one-time donation, which helps pay for various parts of the show. And if that isn't your thing, you can also purchase Fisheries Pod shirts, hoodies, stickers, and even face masks on the Teespring store. So check that out. My name is Anders Halverson, and our guest today is Brian Healy. Brian is the program manager for Native Fish Ecology and Conservation at Grand Canyon National Park, and until just a couple of weeks ago was a PhD student at Utah State University. He just completed his dissertation, so congratulations, Brian, and welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Anders. Glad to be here. I appreciate it. So could you give us some background on the fishes that you are in charge of conservation in Grand Canyon National Park and what the fishes are and sort of some history about what the issues are there? Yeah, absolutely. So Grand Canyon and the Colorado River have a very unique community of fishes. There, Many of them are found nowhere else in the world. In Grand Canyon itself, we historically had eight native fish. Many of those are endemic to the Colorado River, as I, as I mentioned. Those Fish evolved under a system where there were large uh, volcanoes and lava flows and huge floods, uh, lots of dynamic conditions uh, in the river. And, you know, more recently, prior to the dam construction, we had, you know, high spring flows uh, from, you know, originating um, with snowmelt in the, in the Colorado River, or sorry, in the Colorado Rockies in Utah. And um, seasonally warm temperatures, which approach freezing in the winter with really low flows and then um, very warm temperatures in the summer. So once the, uh, the dams were constructed on the Colorado River, we not only cut off migratory routes for the native fishes, but we also profoundly changed the habitat conditions. So now it's a much more stable system. So of the eight fishes that we have, we now um, have lost three of those in Grand Canyon, including the Colorado pike minnow the bony tail and the round tail chub. And many of our conservation actions are focused on uh, two Endangered Species Act listed fish, which are um, razorback sucker and humpback chub. But we also focus conservation efforts on two uh, imperiled species that aren't ESA listed, but they are, their range has been dramatically reduced. And, and those include bluehead sucker and flannel moss sucker. Okay. So can we go back to the dams for a second? So we're talking about primarily the big dams on the Colorado, which is Flaming Gorge, Glen Canyon, and Hoover Dam, although, of course, Hoover wouldn't affect the Grand Canyon. But um, are those the big dams that we're worried about? Right. Yeah, I think those are the, the primary ones. You know, there's 15 total dams on the in the Colorado River system, but those are the, the three that probably have the, the most... Uh, had the most impact on the on the uh, physical habitat, but we also need to remember that Laguna Dam downriver also cut off the Colorado River estuary from the Colorado River system itself, mm-hmm. which was re- important nursery habitat for fish like pike minnow, for example. Interesting. Okay, and what else does the do these dams do? So, how do they aside from blocking migration and they change flows, obviously? But can you speak to that a little more specifically? Sure. Right. Yeah. So. We'll take Glen Canyon Dam as an example. So here, and that's the, the dam that impacts habitat downstream in Grand Canyon. It, uh, it cut off all the entire sediment supply 
for the most part from the Colorado River, which was, you know, very heavily laden with sediment in the past. And it also reduced and stabilized the temperatures for the most part. So these native fishes needed those seasonally warm habitats for their uh, eggs to develop and to reproduce. And uh, post-dam, you know, temperatures are more like more of a stable 10 degrees Celsius versus, you know, that 30 degree maximum. Yeah, so those are the those are the major changes I think that have impacted the fishes. Okay, and then so more about the fish. What are these humpback chub like? Well, they get up to be about four hundred millimeters, you know, a couple feet long maximum. They have a pronounced fleshy hump behind their head, you know. And there's different theories about what that was evolved for. Um, I think the leading hypothesis is that. It allowed them to avoid predation by their or outgrow the gape limit of their one predator, which is uh, the Colorado pike minnow. Interesting. Um, they're actually really beautiful fish. They're very silvery in color. It's spawning season, they get orange fins. Yeah, they're pretty, pretty amazing fish adapted for that big river habitat. Okay, so tell us a little bit about what your research is or what you're doing to try to save these fish. Yeah, absolutely. So I started as the fish program manager here in 2009 and we have been implementing conservation measures related to the operations of Glen Canyon Dam so that projects are funded by the Bureau of Reclamation for the most part and we've been translocated humpback chub from its one source population that has sustained the entire Grand Canyon chub population post dam that was the little Colorado River so we're taking fish from there and translocating them to tributaries to try to establish new populations, and that gives the total Grand Canyon and humpback chub population in general more security by um, having redundancy. Can, that's been let me, the can I pause, pause there for a yeah. second? So you said Little Colorado River very quickly, but people might not right. have picked up that that is different. That's a, that is a river that is called the Little Colorado River, and it is a tributary to the Colorado River. So they're two separate entities, right? Correct. Yes. It's a uh, it's a fairly, yeah, I think the base flow is maybe 200 CFS or so. Um, okay. It's a travertine system that develops these beautiful, large travertine dams with drop mm. pools. And it's got this aquamarine color mm. due to the water chemistry. It's, it's an amazing place. But yeah, that's been a, the, the source, probably the most important tributary for native fish post-dam. And that flows into the Colorado just below Glen Canyon Dam? Right. It's about six. No, it's about 75 miles downstream of the oh, dam. Oh, 75. Okay. Yeah. And then um, where did you, tran- you talked about translocating the fish. So where did you move them into? So far, we've translocated humpback chub to Shinamu Creek beginning in 2009, then to Havasu Creek 2000, starting in 2011. And then uh, we just initiated translocations to Bright Angel Creek um, beginning in 2018. And these are all also tributaries to the Colorado River in Grand right. Canyon National Park. Okay. Right. And what was your goal with the translocations? We had two primary objectives for those projects. I mean, the, the, the top objective was to establish a new spawning and self-sustaining population, each one of those. And the second one was to improve rearing, juvenile rearing and recruitment. So, you know, adding more fish to the overall population because the juvenile survival and recruitment is limited by rainbow trout and the conditions in the main stem. So there's better, warm, food-rich rearing habitats in these tributaries. So, so the idea is if they don't, we didn't establish a new population, we were hoping that the fish would survive and grow well. And then once they disperse into the Colorado River, there'd be much more 
their survival would be higher because they're larger and can avoid that predation by rainbow trout and other predators. So why were there no humpback chub in Havasu Creek and Bright Angel before you put them there? We don't have a really good, there are some historical records, especially for the area around Bright Angel. Actually, the species humpback chub was described from a specimen that was collected near Phantom Ranch, um, which is where Bright Angel Creek is. Yeah, so we don't have really good historic surveys from tributaries, so it's difficult to say what their distribution was, but given that prior to dam construction and river regulation, those tributaries were all connected in, in, um, with the main stem, it seems pretty likely that they would have inhabited those areas. And in fact, um, we installed a pit tag antenna in Bright Angel Creek um, in 2018, right before the first translocation, and we ended up detecting some fish that were not translocated moving in and out of the stream. That's still, that was ongoing through this past year also. Okay, so um, has it been a success? It, we've had mixed results. I, I think in general, yes, definitely. Um, we've met our goals for growth and survival in the Shinmu translocation. Unfortunately, that population was extirpated after a large fire in the watershed in 2014. Um, however, in Havasu, we've met our all our goals where we now have a self-sustaining population there. We, we stopped translocating in 2016 but we had started to see reproduction beginning in about 2012 and 13. And that continues today. So, or at least through last fall when we did our last mounting trip. Okay. So that's great. Are humpback chub found up and down the entire Colorado river system? Are there other small populations hanging on elsewhere? There are grand Canyon definitely has the largest. I think the figure I've seen thrown out there is that we probably have 90% of the world's remaining humpback chub here. Wow. There are, um, Populations in the upper basin that are smaller and maybe a little bit more at risk of predation by smallmouth bass or other predators. But yeah, Grand Canyon's the largest population. So now let's get down in the weeds a little bit. Can you tell us about what it's like actually getting to work out there and, and how you go about capturing the, the fish that you translocated and, and give us the specifics since there's a bunch of fisheries people who will be listening to this and they'll want to hear all about it? Oh Yeah, great. Absolutely. So it's a pretty difficult place to work logistically. I'll just put it, I'll start with that. We generally fly into a couple of these tributaries like Havasu and the Little Colorado River. You can hike to them, but it's rarely long and somewhat dangerous given the 120 degree heat we get in the summer. So we generally fly into Little Colorado River. Fish have been collected there using seines and hoop nets as, as larval or juvenile sizes. We did some population viability modeling a few years back to try to, to figure out what the risk would be of um, taking different life stages out of the little Colorado River. Those fish are then flown out and then driven to a hatchery where they spend about a year growing. And then they're treated for parasites and given flow training and pit tagged, driven back to the south rim of the Grand Canyon, flown into the tributaries to be released and flown into our waiting crews, you know, that are conducting monitoring and other activities on those tributaries. Why do you bring them into a hatchery for a year? What's the logic there? There are a couple things. Um, yeah, the two main ones are that there are some non-native parasites and diseases in the park in certain areas, especially uh, in the Little Colorado River, where it's pretty warm and conducive to things like Asian tapeworm. And so we really did not want to risk moving those parasites around to other areas. So that's one reason they're taken to a hatchery where they can be treated for those. The second one is that we 
have a fairly rigorous monitoring program and an evaluation program in place. And we wanted to understand survival and growth of individuals. So the PIT tags allow us to do that. And these are uh, essentially a microchip inserted into the cavity of the, of the fish that's similar to a chip in a pet, but they have to be a certain size before we can do that. So, you know, minimum size for tagging is about 80 millimeters and they need to be, have about a, almost a year of growth on them before we can tag them. So that's, those are the two reasons for the hatchery. What's the, so what is the survival rate in the, in the hatchery, for example? Very high, really high. Um, trying to think we did have some loss one year. I don't have the numbers on the top of the top of my head, but generally it's a handful of fish. You know, okay. we collect four or 500 at a time. We might lose less than 10. Wow. That's great. Yeah. So you've got that figured out. Yeah. Okay. So then you fly them in and you're not um, dropping them out of the, sh- out of a hole in the bottom of the airplane, like, <laughs> like they do with trout. I, I suppose. Right. <laughs> no, <laughs> that process is a, lot, a little more involved. Okay. <laughs> we, um, we generally, we've, we've been able to fly them. We generally fly them in coolers um, with aeration. Uh, we, we take the temperature of the water in the coolers and also the water in the receiving stream. And we slowly try to match that in the coolers before we release them into the Creek. We want to get it to then about a degree. It takes about, it depends, but you know, it takes about an hour or so of tempering also kind of gets the fish used to that water chemistry too. Mm -hmm. Right. And then you reintroduce them and you've had great success. What's the life cycle? I mean, how long do these humpback chub live and when do they reproduce? Great question. This is one of the really amazing characteristics of the species. They live to be 30 or 40 years old. Um, Yeah, their life history strategy has really evolved to take advantage of fewer really good years for reproduction, you know, so they have lots of eggs. It's sort of a bet hedging strategy. They generally reach maturity in about four years and much longer in the Mainstone Colorado River given the colder temperatures, but in the tributaries, we've seen them reach maturity in as, as few as two years at about 200 millimeters. You know, when we're, when we're monitoring them, we handle them and we can check for their spawning condition essentially. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, they re- reproduce every year in the springtime when water temperatures reach about 16 degrees. And so some of my research has shown in, in others too, that in years when we don't have really good spring runoff, um, reproductive success is lower. Uh, especially that's mainly in the little Colorado river, but for other native fish and other tributaries too. And then the monsoon flooding can also reduce recruitment. And that's part of my research in the translocation sites that I did with uh, Utah state university for my PhD. Okay. So tell us more about that research. Can you elaborate on what your research was specifically and what you, what you found? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, my um, second chapter is, um, essentially an analysis of the survival and growth rates and recruitment rates of humpback chub translocated to the tributaries and what I assess different factors that drove those demographic rates. It's a complicated story, but essentially, you know, let's take recruitment. So recruitment was limited in years when there were higher numbers of rainbow trout and higher numbers of actually adult humpback chub and, 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 oh, and also um, higher frequency of monsoon floods too essentially. So that's, that's one aspect of it. Growth was actually one interesting part of this was that growth of adults was higher when we had more flooding than these canyon bound systems. That's a little bit less well-documented than, than it might be in a 
river with a large floodplain and it was also growth was also limited to higher densities of rainbow trout. So um, the rainbow trout are limiting growth. How are they right. limiting growth? Yeah, I think it might be a little bit of both of, of competition and um, you know, it could be either inter- interference competition, like for space, but also um, for food. You know, they, we did some research in Shinimu Creek, for example, that shows really high diet overlap between humpback chub and rainbow trout okay. that might suggest that they could compete. Okay. So that could be part of it. Yeah. Okay. Hard to say the mechanism exactly from my research, but that's a hypothesis. Okay. Where, where are you going now? Where does the research take you now? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, I've got a couple of different things going on. I think one of the um, more interesting research projects that I'm working on with USGS and others is an, an analysis of a bunch of data from the mean stem to look at how some of the high flow experiments and other flow modifications might have impacted population size, I guess, or density of native fish in the main stem. So let's let's elaborate on that. So the high flow experiments, tell when did they do those and what are we talking about? Yeah, right. So as I mentioned earlier, the you know sediment supply has been cut off by the dam to Grand Canyon. And this is an issue because the the sand would historically deposit on beaches and create you know, habitat for fish and backwaters and things like that, but also camping beaches for people. So the, one of my committee members, Jack Schmidt and others in the past developed a protocol for experimenting with high flow events to try to mimic some of those historic floods to deposit sediment. And so when sufficient sediment supply enters the system from mainly the Perea River, a high flow experiment is triggered and it's a high flow of about anywhere from 36 to 45,000 CFS or so So over a few days. When you say triggered, do you mean at at the dam at Glen Canyon, they start releasing? Okay. So at Glen Canyon, they they made a major release when Pariah is flooding. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it generally is, it's like a buildup cumulative sediment inputs over the summer and then it's been triggered in the fall. And then we've, we've had one, spring high flow experiment also in 2008, I believe. Okay. And when was the most recent one? That's a good question. It might've been 2018. We haven't had one for a few years for a variety of reasons. There's been reduced sediment inputs in a couple of those summers, but also with the declining reservoir levels, it's just, there's a lot more, it's a lot more complicated to make those decisions about high flow experiments. I want to get back to the declining reservoir levels, but so your research is on the impact of these high flow experiments on the humpback chub. And how do you go about doing that, given that the most recent one was already several years ago? Right. So the I think the data set, we have data from 2014 through 2021. We work with a couple of cooperators to collect the data using SANES, and it's geared towards larval and small-bodied fish, so young of year, native, native and non-native fish. We haven't quite ironed out the methods yet, but we'll try to assess, you know, the different drivers of their numbers and account for things like turbidity and temperatures that might impact how well we can sample with staining. Oh, and flow, also flow dis, um, discharge volume. And, you know, we're going to try to answer a few questions related to the dam using this data set. And it's kind of a, yeah, like I said, it's a new, new project um, that we're just kicking off. So I guess given that they're an endangered species, you can't actually collect 
chub and then see how old they are using otoliths. You can't do any, you can't do any destructive sampling. That's been fairly limited for yeah. sure. In this case, we do have some. Their fish are collected at sizes that can't be identified in the field with this project. So we do have some very small larval chub and other fish that we could look at otoliths to understand okay. their growth rates. Yeah. Okay. So you mentioned how it's going to be, di- it's difficult now and it's going to be difficult to do any more high flow experiments given the state of the reservoirs. Can you just elaborate on that for people that aren't aware of what's going on right now? Right. Um, yeah, it's, it's, we're moving towards a really constrained um, water supply system in the Colorado river, you know, and the, the water is, the, it's a water supply for 30 to 40 million people in the Colorado river basin in seven States. And so the, the entire Reservoir system is designed to, you know, provide that water and, and hydropower generation. But we've had climate change and overallocation of water that has limited the amount of water that's in these reservoirs. So, Lake Powell itself, which is just upstream of Glen Canyon Dam and Grand Canyon, has been declining at a fairly fast pace over the last several years because of drought and. Even though the high flow experiments don't change the water level necessarily, or it's a very short term change, it still makes the the job of the decision makers much more complicated. And I guess, and the other thing is, at elevation thirty four ninety, we can below that level, we'll no longer be able to generate hydropower. So, Department of Interior and other agencies are trying to maintain Hold on. the level. Yeah. So people might not know what that means. So. Elevation 3490 actually means that the level of the reservoir is at 3,490 feet, correct? That's 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 correct. Above sea level. level. They're measuring it above sea level. And the the base of the reservoir, I don't know what the base of the reservoir is in terms of elevation. But anyway, that means the reservoir has dropped very so low that they cannot, they can no longer generate hydropower at at a certain level. Right. That's right. And there's, there's issues when you get below that level, there's risk to the infrastructure. You could have cavitation or something and engineers are really concerned about that. At that point, if the water level continues to decline, they'll switch to using bypass tubes, which are way, you know, much deeper. I think it's, they're about a hundred feet deeper in the reservoir or in the dam. They don't have turbines on them. They um, are just designed to move water and the water will be colder for a while because it's below the warm mm-hmm. surface layers mm-hmm. of the lake that are starting to be drawn through the dam now. Um, so it'll be much, much cooler and have less oxygen also. So what does this mean? I mean, this, this mega drought that we're in thanks to climate change and now the dam is starting to get to a point where it's non-functional. What, what does this mean over the long term? Where do you see things going over the next 10, 20, 30 years? Good question. <laughs> I think it's a good question for a lot of different people that are spending a lot of time thinking about this. At some point, and I believe there's a new planning effort that is scheduled for the next few years to reevaluate basin-wide reservoir operations, or maybe it's just lower basin res- reservoirs or, or Mead and Powell. Sorry, dog barking. Uh, <laughs> they're going to have to decide how best to store the water in those systems to be, you know, to conserve it and still meet all their water delivery requirements, you know, including to the basin states in Mexico and tribes as well. It's going to be a really difficult set of decisions and planning effort to move through that. And, you know, one of the, one of the I, 
evaluated a few of the options in my um, dissertation work for prioritizing storage in different reservoirs. And it could have a very, depending on the decision made, whether they prioritize storage in Lake Mead or Lake Powell, it could have very different impacts on fish habitat in Grand Canyon. What priority will the fish get in that whole decision-making process? I mean, we're talking about power, we're talking about irrigation, we're talking about drinking water. Uh, good question. I think, you know, we, for you know, working for the Park Service, our mission is to conserve native species. I don't know how that's going to play out in the priority system for, you know, those reservoir storage decisions. It's hard to say. You know, I, I can only really speculate on it since I'm not a decision maker on that. But, I you know, I know they'll be thinking about those water delivery requirements and human health and safety and hydropower generation. I don't know where the endangered fish fit in that picture, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, okay, let me ask you another one that might be an even tougher question. Um, why should we care about this fish? That's a, another good question. Thank you. Yeah, so, you know, we get... Millions of people coming to the Grand Canyon and, you know, tens of thousands running the river. And I like to think of it as, you know, humpback shab and other native fish here. Just they're part of the, you know, iconic nature of Grand Canyon National Park. It's, you know, a crown jewel of our national park system. So, mm-hmm. yeah, but I, I realize that not everybody shares those values, but there's many people that do. You know, they're they're an important part of the ecosystem, as are the pike minnow that we hope to re- bring back at some point. You know, the top predator in the system. That oh, that's interesting. You're actually talking about trying to bring that back? We are. Yeah, we completed a comprehensive fisheries management plan in, you know, in the last 10 years or so. And we've included sort of, sort of some preliminary steps for evaluating whether pike minnow might be able to survive here in Grand Canyon and contribute towards re- overall recovery of the species, too, of course. And we're... We convened an expert panel um, in 2019 in the fall to look at some of the questions that we're, we've been thinking about. Huh. And um, it seems that many of the experts that we brought in from outside were looking at the habitat in Grand Canyon and, you know, like pulling hoop nets that were dominated by native fish and humpback chub and just a little bit blown away about how this could be maybe the last best place to attempt to re- you know, recover that species. Wow, that I didn't realize that that would be pretty amazing. And just so everybody knows, the Colorado pike minnow is a pretty amazing fish. I mean, they get to what at least hundred centimeter, two hundred, a couple meters long, right? They used to, yeah, definitely. There is six foot long pike minnow, yeah. And I and I remember reading a story from some archive about the Colorado pike minnow, and they used to fish for them by attaching a whole chicken to a hook, big old hook. <laughs> and tying it to some clothesline and that to the back bumper of their truck. And they'd back down to the river and throw it in and then they'd hook it. And then they'd drive back up and pull this just monster fish out of the river. Right. Yeah. Right. 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 Yeah. So that would be pretty amazing to get those, those fish back. Yeah. And one point I should, I don't remember I mentioned this earlier, but it's important. I, you know, I mentioned we have the largest humpback chub population. I don't think it's commonly known that Grand Canyon's fish community is dominated by native species for most of the river. We've been, you know, been doing these surveys over the, over time and documented that in, in a publication, and that's a incredibly unique and rare thing in the Colorado River system. That is very uh, rare. Yeah. So, are there any other threats that you're worried about? Good question. I, you know, to go along with this declining reservoir level, one of mm-hmm. our 
the concerns we're discussing literally on a daily basis and dominating our you know discussions at meetings among stakeholders and other agencies is this idea that we're going to have invasions of smallmouth bass and other fish through the dam. I think I mentioned earlier that warmer surface layer is you know is being drawn through the the turbines now and with that we've seen recently you know hundreds or thousands of shad coming through the dam. Wow. Um, we're seeing higher numbers of warm water green sunfish below the dam. But we're really worried about smallmouth bass mm-hmm. coming through. There's been a few records of those fish in Grand Canyon in the past. You know, we, we occasionally get striped bass or walleyes or smallmouth come through. But until now, the temperatures haven't been warm enough necessarily to really allow them to take off. And they've exploded in places like the Yampa and completely eliminated humpback chub. So we're really, really concerned about that and are going to have possibly limited tools to respond to that invasion happens so what are you going to do well aside from losing sleep (laughs) (laughs) um we are discussing how we might respond and you know anything that we do down here we have to consult with our traditionally associated tribes and other stakeholders and try to develop a plan together to respond and it might include electrofishing or something to try to eliminate really small pockets of spawning fish Mm -hmm. hopefully we catch them earlier and um before they've established and spread throughout the system where it might take annual mechanical removal, you know, using electrofishing that, you know, would be in the millions of dollars per year. So we're hoping to avoid that. Yeah. I was just talking to someone just a month ago about the efforts to get rid of lake trout in Yellowstone Lake and Yellowstone National Park. They don't seem like they've hit on the magic, the silver bullet yet either. Yeah, it's been difficult. We've had some success removing trout from Bright Angel Creek it's still a huge effort. It's a four month effort with backpack electric electrofishing units, you know, throughout the entire stream. And we still have years where there's really low runoff and the brown trout can kind of explode, you know, even if there's only a few adults left. And we, we've suppressed the trout population by 90% in the past. And um, after we got that level down to about 60, I found the uh, native fish increased by 480%, which is a wow. pretty incredible response there. But we're still chasing brown trout around and trying to keep a, their numbers low. And it's difficult, even in a small stream. Yeah, it just never ends. Right. Okay. Well, thank you, Brian. Now we get to the most difficult part of the interview, which is there's five questions that we ask everybody at the end of the show. The first one is hopefully kind of simple for you. What is your favorite fish? It's a hard question. <laughs> I have lots of them. All right. Well, yeah, maybe I should Let's do your least favorite job. fish. Humpback job. Yeah. I was going to say smallmouth bass. Least favorite <laughs> might at this time be brown trout. Brown <laughs> trout. least favorite. <laughs> or maybe even rainbows because uh, we have something that yeah. got a handle on them. Okay. Well, what? Okay. So what's your second favorite fish? What was also in the running? I'm curious. <sighs> I, I really appreciate native cutthroat, I think, you know, I mean, I know there's a lot of subspecies. I, you know, we don't have cutthroat here, but I, in my previous life, I, I worked with them in Colorado. I would say, let, let's go with that. I think, I know that's a pretty broad list of subspecies that are in there, but. Okay. Well, I like it. I like it. Okay. I love cutthroat. Okay. Um, what is your favorite memory from your career so far? Oh, I think it was pretty special. The first, it was my second day of work in Grand Canyon. And I went on a river trip and we released Humpback Chub in Shinomo Creek. That was a pretty incredible highlight for me. 
I think that would be a highlight for anybody working down there. Yeah. I think well, we're going to get to a question. The next question, which is, what is your dream job and location? And I'm thinking I can't imagine a better place and a better job than what you have now, but maybe you have something else you'd rather be doing. <laughs> I honestly, I, I like the applied research we can do in Grand Canyon. You know, we're, we're making gains with native fish and, and analyzing the data and hopefully, you know, contributing to conservation in general. And if I can keep doing that here, I, I'd like to stay, but otherwise I'd probably be interested in a, a you know, like a USGS co-op position at a university or something. Mm-hmm. That would be my dream job. I'm, yeah. That's one of the things that motivated me to go back for my PhD. So was what the possibility of doing more academia? Yeah, well, yeah a little bit, but just getting the tools improving my skill set, you know, mm-hmm. so I could do a better job of analyzing our data and contributing to conservation with some really good science, you know. And do you feel like you did that? Did it, did your PhD help you with any particular tools? I think so. I think personally, I got a lot better at my, you know, my quantitative skills, especially mark recapture modeling, demographic modeling. That's, mm-hmm. that's kind of my main area of focus, I think. And yeah, I, I learned, I learned a lot. I had such an incredible committee, great mentors. Yeah. I couldn't have asked for a better group of people to be on my committee. It was great. Awesome. Okay. If money was not an issue, what is one project that you would like to work on? Huh. That is a tough question. You're right. Can we add in no political constraints? Sure. Also? sure. Yeah, you bet. <laughs> I would, I think releasing Colorado pipeline on Grand Canyon and, understanding their movements and their survival and whether they reproduce, that would be, that would be pretty amazing. That would be incredible. Yeah. That would be pretty neat. Okay. If there was one point or principle that you could have programmed into everyone's head, what would it be? Native fish conservation. (laughs) You know, the idea that we across the globe are homogenizing fish communities and eliminating fish that evolved in a, in a one stream or something, you know? Yeah. I think that would be it for me. Well, I'm with you on that one. Okay. Well, Brian, thank you for coming on the podcast today. I loved learning about this stuff and good luck with everything else and your future endeavors. If people want to get in touch with you about this, how should they do that? Oh yeah. They could um, email me at Brian, B-R-I-A, and underscore Healy, H-E-A-L-Y at nps.gov. Okay, great. And I'll put that in the show notes as well. Yeah, absolutely. So people can get in touch if they want anything else. Okay, well, thanks again, Brian. Yeah, thank you. And thanks to all of our listeners. I hope that you have enjoyed this episode. You can download past, present, and future episodes on your favorite listening app or stream it from Spotify or thefisheriespodcast.com. Don't forget you can help support the podcast with a contribution through Patreon or by buying some swag on the Teespring store. I'm Anders Halverson. Thank you for listening. And remember, native fish conservation. <laughs>